Welcome to the University of Washington's Political Economy Forum. We bring together diverse scholars, policymakers, and citizens to discuss current public policy issues, to inform the public about them, and to find evidence-based solutions. Feel free to visit our website at uwpoliticaleconomy.com. We publish new episodes of this podcast every week. If you have questions or suggestions for discussion topics, please contact us on Twitter at ForumUW or email us at uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Hello, everyone. My name is Nicholas Wittstock, and in today's episode, I speak to Susan Whiting. Susan is professor of political science at the University of Washington in Seattle, where she also holds additional adjunct appointments in the Jackson School of International Studies and the UW School of Law. Susan is a scholar of China and is especially focusing on the political economy of development. In this conversation today, we speak about the crisis of the Chinese real estate developing firm Evergrande, and discuss what Evergrande illustrates about how the Chinese political economy functions and what challenges its development model is currently facing. Hello, Susan Whiting. Hey, Nicholas, how are you doing? I'm great. Thank you so much. I hope you're doing well yourself. Indeed, yeah. Great. Well, we're, we're really happy to have you on, um, Susan, because you're a scholar of China's political economy and its legal system. Um, and yeah, I mean, the political and economic rise of China is really one of the most important events of this age. I think that's not hyperbolic to claim. Yeah, I mean, China has lifted literally hundreds of millions of people out of poverty uh, to the extent that, you know, Chinese people are now buying iPhones and order takeout food, right, which is incredible. Uh, I'm sure you can attest to that, given that you've studied China for quite a while now, right? So you've visited China uh, where... Uh, reality might have looked a bit different than it does right now. So I think understanding how this transformation has occurred is really important for political economists. And um, yeah, I mean, China has recently been in the news a lot because of, you know, US geostrategic concerns, uh, Trump's famous trade war against China. Recently, people have also been interested in the regulatory crackdown on China's tech giants, which we actually covered here on the podcast. Um, now Evergrande, a real estate developer, has made big news. And of course, large-scale investment in infrastructure, but also real estate development have been very important to the Chinese growth story. And this is really what we're going to try to um, unpack in this conversation. Because you recently published a piece in the Washington Post's uh, Monkey Cage on the Evergrande crisis. So what exactly is Evergrande and, and what's the crisis? And why is this so important for China? What is going on here? Yeah, um, well, Evergrande is a real estate developer and um, real estate is a major um, industrial sector that's been a big piece of recent growth in China. Um, they It relates also to the construction industry. Um, uh, so it entails a lot of employment and um, uh, is a driver of growth. Like we think about um, real estate, construction, property management, um, related industries. This is um, economists have estimated about a fifth to a quarter of the uh, Chinese economy. What has driven this crisis is the ability of these firms like Evergrande to take on debt. And uh, Evergrande has uh, carries about you know 300 billion U.S. dollars in debt. Um, they're not alone, right? Other 
uh, if we look at the real estate sector as a whole, this is um, these real estate developers are carrying an estimated like five trillion U.S. dollars of debt um, that has enabled them to um, get way beyond their core business interests. And Evergrande, for example, has gotten into electric vehicles not too successfully, um, uh, soccer, professional soccer, not too successfully, right? And um, uh, and so there's this uh, massive amount of debt that they're carrying. The what triggered the crisis per se is that um, uh, the the Chinese government is concerned about this. Um, there and they actually late last year um, targeted the real estate developers um, to try to rein in this debt problem, and um, they put in place what they refer to as the, the three red lines, kind of a set of criteria um, that firms had to meet in order to get additional um, lending from uh, state-run commercial banks. And uh, Evergrande failed this test, right? And so then they couldn't get additional lending. And that creates yeah. this kind of liquidity crisis where we see that um, they pushed the boundaries on making payments, um, first of all, on some dollar denominated um, bonds um, that's part of their debt uh, portfolio and um, only just made them at the 11th hour first mm -hmm. uh, at the end of the 30 day grace period um, last week and then again this week. So um, they, they, they did not default, um, but they scared everybody by pushing these first um, payments to the very end of the grace period. Uh, but that was triggered by this kind of policy intervention. Um, that the uh, regulators put in place at the end of 2020. Evergrande, as you're alluding to, is, is potentially emblematic of China's, um, as you say, recent investment-led growth. So um, what, what exactly um, made China rely so much on investment in, in real estate? Yeah, well, there are a number of, of ways in which um, we've seen China in the reform era, which I think we can now say is there's a new era. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. But in the reform era, uh, one of the things we see is, is mobilizing resources um, uh, for, for new purposes, right? Um, and if I go step way back, uh, we can, you, you mentioned the lifting of hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, right? Um, and this was in part uh, um, allowing China to actually play to its comparative advantage, right? To um, uh, some some important reforms in the agricultural sector revealed the um, hundreds of millions of people as surplus labor, right? Mm -hmm. And then other um, reforms uh, allowed them to temporarily migrate to cities to mm -hmm. take on new jobs, right? Um, and uh, yet additional reforms allowed foreign capital to um, invest as direct foreign investment. Uh, and we can see the rise of this kind of a manufacturing sector that's uh, based on um, low wage competitiveness, right? Um, that, that doesn't last forever. That's part of the growth is mobilizing labor into more productive uses, right? Um, uh, and you know, uh, eventually that surplus labor gets gets right. Up, right. And then China like will uh, is seeking to compete on other uh, bases. Another way in which we see a mobilization of resources is in land, right? And um, so the the Chinese state has a um, a very uh, uh, incomplete bifurcated land market. 
where the state plays a really heavy hand. Um, urban land is um, considered to be owned by the state mm -hmm. and rural land is uh, technically owned by rural collectives, um, village mm -hmm. communities. So it's kind of collectively owned. We see that in some other cases around the world as well. Um, uh, but in the Chinese case, the state has a, basically a monopoly on the ability to sell, take land from the rural sector and sell it into the urban sector. So a farm household does not have the right to sell to a real estate developer. Mm -hmm. um, only the government has that right. Um, that's a very valuable right in the context of urbanization, right? And right. lots of demand for land in the context of, of fast-paced growth. Um, and it's governments that sit on, on that basic rent. There's an, another aspect of that is that they, um, by law, local governments pay below market value for the land they take out of the rural sector. And, um, and so then they can get huge rents by selling it to real estate developers um, uh, who might want to, to um, you know, take advantage of this urbanization and the demand for urban housing and that sort of thing. So, so this has been going on for decades, right? And is part of this um, kind of uh, recent, you know, past couple of decades of growth model, right? Uh, providing mm -hmm. land into the urban sector and the government gets a, a big cut of that. Um, farm households do not, right? They're technically compensated for the value of their land in agriculture, not the value of their land at its first best use. Um, so like if you, uh, um, and, uh, and the, the government can sell that land into the urban market for to private entities like real estate developers. Um, it can build industrial parks, right? It can build infrastructure. Um, so typically um, governments might use that power to take land cheaply out of the rural sector and, and provide it to the urban industrial sector and industrial parks at very low cost as right. an aspect of industrial policy. Um, but they typically sell it to real estate developers at relatively higher prices. Not to say that there's not negotiation going on and deals being made, um, but local governments um, get a lot of money by selling that land they acquired cheaply to real estate developers. Um, it's if you look at their official budget, you know, it's um, half again, uh, the official budget comes from land sales, let's say right. last year. Um, so, so that's another way in which the government is putting resources into the urban sector, right? Um, uh, using its ability to provide land to the urban sector for growth. So we're seeing labor going into the urban sector, land going into the urban sector, um, and we can talk about capital as well um, uh, when we get to it, right? So all these factors of production, they're, they're kind of pouring them into the, the urban sector that supports this kind of um, growth. Uh, yeah. um, those, those things don't last forever, right? That's a kind of stage of growth. So you, you mentioned that half of the uh, funding of local governments comes from those kinds of land sales. Um, could you expand a little bit on how exactly local governments uh, in China fund themselves? What exactly are the dynamics between local and uh, the central government? And what exactly are the incentives that then arise out of these dynamics? Yeah, so um, China is a unitary state. Um, so like think differently from the US context as a federal state where where um, state level governments have the authority to legislate their own taxes. Mm -hmm. um, China is a unitary state. 
Um, only the central government has the authority to um, legislate taxes um, that then local governments may be assigned. Um, and so in the, um, the system that's been in place since 1994, uh, the central government designed a system to bring resources to the center so that the center could achieve its goals. That might be, you know, putting people in space, that might be um, uh, equalizing across provinces. But the way it's structured the fiscal system is that um, the most, the biggest tax uh, types um, go to the center. Mm-hmm. And um, it's assigned revenue that, that um, puts a lot of money in the hands of the center, not a lot of money in the hands of local governments. And local governments do not have the authority to then say, um, we'd like to legislate more taxes um, to fund our activities, whether it's road building, you know, health clinics, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, whatever it might be. Um, at the same time, the, the center also sets expenditure responsibilities. And um, a lot of the kind of, of public facing responsibilities of government, whether it's like, you know, local, local infrastructure, um, uh, education, healthcare is um, tasked to the local government. Um, mm-hmm. And so they, they don't have a lot of resources to um, uh, meet all these expenditure responsibilities. And um, that's one kind of factor that's driven them to like look for revenue handles. And um, land is a, is a big revenue handle, the way it's structured, as I alluded to before, right, where they can acquire it cheaply and sell it dear, right, um, and get some revenues that way. Um, they use a lot of those revenues to build infrastructure um, that, um, you know, supports further local growth. Um, but but uh, land uh, revenues are one thing that the center hasn't grabbed right it's um it's Mm. allowed local governments to um manage that uh kind of um land arbitrage right but i mean as you mentioned it seems like that um vehicle for for funding seems to be uh running out yeah land is a finite resource right you can't rely on land sales forever um and and the chinese government is aware of that um We've seen experiments um, around, which is a, a kind of technique of, of policy development in China right. around yeah. developing a property tax, right? That might be only the center has the authority to legislate a property tax, um, again, unlike in federal systems. Uh, and so they've been looking at that for fully a decade. There are mm. experiments that took place in Shanghai and Chongqing um, to develop a property tax uh, that would, a like, cool down this this crazed uh, real estate market, provide a better source of funding for local governments. Um, uh, And those experiments haven't gone anywhere. Hmm. Um, They started in 2011. Um, In uh, 2013, at the beginning, near the beginning of the current Xi Jinping administration, um, there was talk about, all right, let's put this in place, right? Um, uh, As part of deepening reform. Uh, But we have not seen that move forward. And only this month are there new discussions, not about a property tax, but about indeed about implementing property tax, but new experiments around a property mm. tax that okay. will go on for five years. And then maybe five years from now, there'll be, you know, the, the center will put in place this property tax that's that's a still in design, still in discussion, 
So that's like a decade and a half yeah. um, in which you know these these um, fiscal issues um, and distorted incentives haven't been addressed. Um, so that's a little bit puzzling. Um, I think it's interesting as a political scientist to think about that because um, uh, it, I think it shows who are some of the important constituents of the Xi Jinping administration. Um, right. Local governments enjoy, you know, relying on land sales. Um, they have a lot of discretion over that revenue. Um, uh, the um, it, so they they don't really want to let that go. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, taking that that kind of land sale revenue away from local governments would be very unpopular. Um, so that suggests that local governments are um, this whole apparatus uh, is a, an important constituency for the Xi Jinping administration. Um, property taxes would also hit urban households. Um, mm. uh, we can we can talk about the way they they play in the property market. Um, home ownership is very widespread um, in China, like a very high percentage of of urban households own their apartments essentially. Um, and uh, they also invest in additional apartments, which we can we can talk about. But so if they face a property tax, um, you know, that would be a hit in the short term that they'd have to adjust to. And it's not very popular among the urban middle class. So, mm. so that also suggests that that urban middle class is a, an important constituency for the um, administration. Um, and, and perhaps that has something to do with why these, this um, um, thoroughgoing property tax that's been on the agenda since 2011 has not really um, been implemented na- nationwide in more than a decade. Yeah, that makes sense. But um, so, so what exactly are now the, the economic ramifications of the situation as it presents itself at, uh, as it presents itself at the moment? Um, okay, so some of these real estate developers seem to be in a bit of a liquidity crunch. Um, how is this really going to be an issue for either for local governments, local growth, or any of the other constituencies that you were mentioning? Yeah, one of the impacts of of this kind of policy intervention that kind of cut off credit to mm-hmm. these um, over indebted uh, real estate firms uh, is that they can't keep projects going forward, right? They mm. um, so construction projects around the country then um, halt work uh, because they're of this kind of cash flow problem, right? Uh, and that affects employment. That affects local growth. Um, uh, and in the particular model that we see that Evergrande has adopted in recent years of pre-sales, where households may even actually pay in advance for apartments that have not been constructed, um, okay. people awaiting their apartments mm. are um, high and dry right? when construction halts. So so the, that's a, um, a particular kind of hit to those who actually paid in advance for apartments they haven't haven't gotten. Right. So one thing that you've mentioned in your um, piece as well is that investment in real estate, especially also for private households, is an important tool to circumvent different um, different mechanisms of financial repression. Could you um, elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. Um, so there are a couple of different ways to look at that. The the um, the banking sector in China is, um, and the financial sector is is uh, 
features a lot of state control. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the big banks and most of the banking sector are state-run commercial banks. Mm -hmm. um, so the um, the government can influence then the interest rates and interest rates on deposits, for example, are um, quite low. Uh, and so households who are looking for outlets for their savings, you know, might look want alternatives to that state-run commercial banking system where they can't earn a lot of interest. Right. Uh, so just um, real quick, and what what is the rationale behind the interest uh, interest rates being held low? Um, so then banks have capital, but they mm -hmm. don't pay a lot of interest for it. The state can also direct that lending right, right. to its preferred targets um, also at at more favorable interest rates. Right. So um, this allows the state to manage um, capital uh, in the way that it sees fit. Right. Um, uh, because households don't have a lot of options. And, um, and we see, for example, under the Xi Jinping administration, that um, there's been a noted shift from lending to the private sector, which is um, typically more profitable, um, uh, uh, ostensibly a better credit risk, right? Mm -hmm. um, and more efficient, more profitable um, to state firms uh, uh, because that reflects state priorities, but they have right. the ability to do that um, the way they manage the state-run commercial banking system. So households are looking for alternatives, right? For mm, of course, yeah. uh, better investment opportunities for their capital than just putting their savings in the state-run commercial banking system. Um, they uh, can't just invest abroad. Um, there are capital controls. And just if we just think about households as an example, they are limited to um, exchanging 50,000 US dollars a year. Mm -hmm. um, and so Although there like, are ways around that, apparently, right? There's some sure. creative ways there. Yeah, but that there's a, a political risk when you start skirting the rules, right? And um, uh, so, so that's less of an option for Chinese households, right? Um, and uh, the one investment option, uh, because real estate prices have been pretty strong and, mm. and increasing, is investing in real estate, right? Um, mm -hmm. So urban households often, like there's a quite high percentage that has a second home um, mm. that may be rented out, may be vacant, um, and even third homes as kind of investment vehicles. So um, the, you know, they would might take a hit if the property market collapses. And also if there's a property tax, right? That's a lot of their savings might be tied up in, in uh, real estate. So, mm. um, uh, but but part of the drive behind that is that they don't have a lot of other good options. Like interest rates are quite low in the state run commercial banks. Um, there are limits on how much they can invest uh, or even exchange ab abroad. The, under the Xi Jinping administration, there's been a kind of a shadow banking that's emerged because, you know, there's demand for more capital. Uh, people are willing to pay some higher interest rates. There's also been a crackdown on that. So um, households are, you know, kind of, looking for higher returns and have um, invested a lot in real estate. As someone that became sort of economically conscious during the 2008 uh, U.S. Um, mortgage crisis, alarm bells are definitely ringing in my head. This sounds like a very, very potentially dangerous situation, right? Where you've now blown up this massive 
um, housing market with uh, all these people's uh, capital that are looking for high returns um, on their savings. And now it looks like if, if Evergrande is indicative of anything of the wider system, that that might be in for quite a dramatic correction in price. How big are the potential risks here for the entire uh, Chinese uh, financial system? Yeah, um, well, it, I, I I don't have a way to really like guess about the magnitude of that, right. but but clearly there's a, a lot of risk there and we've seen that the state has intervened to try to manage that, right? Mm. In, in some ways they create crises and then manage crises. Um, right. So we see the hand of the state on on both ends of, of this process, right? So the, um, uh, the state targeted real estate developers with these three red lines limiting their borrowing, um, uh, which, which I think is a trigger of the current crisis, right? Um, but they also likely intervene in, and it's not clear exactly how in the past two weeks to help um, make sure that Evergrande didn't default um, uh, because these these risks are quite quite large. Um, yeah. uh, hard to say what the magnitude is, but um, given the importance of real estate and construction to the the economy, exactly. Um, yeah. Is there no risk that this would uh, impact the the uh, access to to capital for for other elements of the real economy in China? That growth on all on, on several fronts would slow significantly, and then you don't just have this um, as as you're mentioning, right? It's not just uh, some some vague company that is going to possibly take a hit, but obviously uh, all of these sectors are huge um, sources of employment, for example. So this this is not necessarily a localized issue of the real estate sector. Right, but this is—it's it, very possible that this spreads to other um, uh, sectors of the economy. Yeah, and I think that's that's part of the hesitancy that we've seen over the past decade and a half to to grappling fundamentally with this kind of phenomenon, right, and, mm. and reliance on real estate and construction, um, because uh, the I think the government really prioritizes growth, um, mm. particularly after the. Um, global financial crisis, right? So 2008, um, uh, massive stimulus uh, and, you know, initial steps to try to say, well, you know, um, maybe we don't want governments just just playing this game with land, right? Taking cheap land and, and supplying it to the cities, um, um, relying on the purchase of that land by real estate companies uh, who are also supported with a lot of bank loans, Right. Um, but after the 2008 financial crisis, um, we see this kind of um, doubling, you know, returning to that model. Right. The hesitancy to step away from that because um, it's they want to support growth and to stimulate the economy. And so whenever growth slows, um, this is a way this whole dynamic is a way that the, the system has has tried to revive growth. Right. Mm. And um, kind of regulatory steps that might like really um, put the economy on a sounder footing uh, haven't been taken uh, because, well, no, we want to like wait and still drive some more growth through this, mm -hmm. but that, that can't last forever. Right. So I think that's where we see the potential crisis. And so, yeah, it makes sense that property tax has returned to the agenda this very month. Right. Although with a very long time horizon for getting that, that policy in place. Right. Um, uh, you know, it's in the past year where we've seen this, you know, attempt to crack down on debt, uh, but the, it's um, interrelated and the government triggers a crisis and then also deals with the crisis 
Um, so it's really hard to step away from this kind of really state inflected um, investment driven growth model. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. To what extent is this, does this have the potential to develop into a more severe political crisis as well? Because you mentioned that it is uh, obviously, especially more a wealthy urban middle class households that would be affected by um, a significant reduction in the price of real estate. That opportunity to to escape some of the um, measures of financial repression that were, you were describing earlier. Yeah, well, um, we're now at the end of uh, Xi Jinping's second term as General Secretary of the Communist Party. Um, uh, the party will meet next year. Um, and, uh, you know, by all appearances, um, uh, it looks like he's poised to continue as mm -hmm. general secretary, breaking an unwritten norm of, of two terms uh, over the past couple of decades. Um, uh, so the, Xi Jinping and his administration have a lot of tools to um, deal with potential unrest, but we also see very like um, tentative steps towards uh, resolving um, these underlying kind of structural challenges in the Chinese mm. economy and um, a hesitancy to take on the risk of, of the tough reforms, right? So, mm. um, yeah, so I think that there's the ability to um, manage dissent, whether it's through control over, over um, what happens on social media, um, uh, what happens in, we did see some protests right in front of uh, Evergrande's uh, offices, um, but the, the state has the ability and willingness to, you know, um, break those up, right? right. Uh, so I think it's got a lot of tools um, as a single party authoritarian regime to, to deal with that. And we see this very um, hesitant approach to make some really tough reforms. Yeah, exactly. On tough reforms. I mean, you mentioned that um, a growth model that relies on people uh, migrating to the city on you know, pouring a lot of concrete, um, yeah, expanding uh, infrastructure, just adding more factories. Um, growth like that is uh, inherently limited, right? Like th there's only so far that you can really go by uh, by growing on the um, extensive margin. Yeah. 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 So uh, really, this is uh, this is probably the point, right? and I mean millions of people have said this right where china needs to especially invest in productivity improvements uh, needs to innovate needs to to find new sources of economic growth um but it seems as you're saying right it seems a little bit complicated given the current sets of institutions and obviously you know people are going to bring up the question of to what extent is china able uh, to really do this right to like break out of this um uh yeah, a set of self-imposed constraints that 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 um, are currently existing. Um, so, is yeah, what, what's your outlook? Like, what what do you think? What is the the way forward? Yeah, I think um, so. What where the state is very present in markets, right, for capital and for for land and stuff like that, results in misallocation of resources, mm -hmm. right? It doesn't necessarily go to the most efficient use. It doesn't. Um, uh, the most productive use, uh, and that the costs of misallocation, I think, become greater the more mature the economy becomes. Yeah. Um, so uh, that said, the the state still has a there's a lot of of slack there, right? Um, mm -hmm. uh, the you know growth has been real, like 
the economy, um, people's lives, uh, cities have been transformed, right? Uh, so um, it's really, I think, about the political will. And, um, and, and it will be interesting to see what happens in, in Xi Jinping's you know, assuming he, he does take on a, a next term, right? And, uh, you know, is he um, now having, you know, um, been at the head of the Chinese system for uh, nearly a decade, um, willing to take on some of these um, uh, really naughty challenges. Um, but I think what will pressure him is that the costs um, become greater, right, of, of misallocation. Right. Um, as as the economy gets more mature, um, you mentioned innovation, right? It's it's you know they're they're um, I think the most innovative um, sectors in in the Chinese economy have been ones where there's been a lot of competition, um, mm -hmm. and competition um, drives drives innovation. Um, so to the extent that resources are still um, under the Xi Jinping administration being directed to let's say more privileged state firms um, in sectors where there's not as much competition. Uh, I don't think that bodes well for successful innovation, right? Yeah. Um, uh, and in, in sectors where, you know, um, maybe there are barriers to complete integration in the global economy. So, so I think that in the absence of real competition, whether it's from domestic firms, which has been important historically in the reform era or internationally, um, yeah, that that will um, doesn't bode well for mm. for really innovation driven uh, growth. Yeah, absolutely. So, is the main trade off then really one of political control for uh, for the party that they're concerned uh, that is sort of the classic dilemma, right, of 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 an autocratic leadership that if there's too much innovation, too much economic growth, you're going to possibly empower. Uh, different groups in society that might become a threat to you, plus you're undermining the rents of those who are supporting you. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, so we could think about, about um, you know, Jack Ma and Alibaba, which you may have already yeah, exactly, addressed yeah. in other other um, podcasts. Um, you know, is that is that an example of somebody mm -hmm. who's, you know, Got too much independent control over over wealth and um, potential control over capital, mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know who has at times been relatively outspoken politically. Um, yeah, that that perhaps is politically threatening, um, but I think you know the bigger forces are you know the urban middle class, and and so I think we see this hesitance to take steps that really undermine their their interests and uh, as well as as local governments right not hanging them out to dry as it were um, mm. there in in the earlier administrations we've seen more bold moves that that um, hurt the interests of local governments in terms of resetting the economic system um, in the first decades of reform uh, um, but we haven't seen those bold moves uh, in the current administration. Okay. Uh, let me ask you to, to speculate in, in two ways. Let's, let's say uh, there, there's one optimistic scenario um, over the next 10 years. And I'd be curious to hear what your thoughts would be like how that would look like. And then one pessimistic scenario. So I think an optimistic scenario is we could look at it in a, in a range of areas that we've been talking about, right? So um, 
on the agenda for now almost a decade has been like unifying land markets. Mm-hmm. And um, we've seen some very small baby steps in that direction where um, the gov- local governments have had a monopoly on um, uh, ex- requisitioning land from the rural sector and selling it into the urban sector. In December, 2019, with a very small revision to the land management law, um, uh, a, a certain kind of rural land now can be um, sold into the urban sector um, by villages, um, by village collectives. Um, that's that it's a special kind of land called rural construction land. Um, so land that already had non-agricultural, you know, use. Uh, um, it, it's it's uh, um, just a very small piece, but that technically breaks that monopoly. We could see more steps mm-hmm. like that. Like what about um, something that's been considered and not adopted, allowing farm households to sell their residential land to um, urban buyers directly? Uh, that was considered and set aside. But so opening that up, would we could begin to see the, the gradual creation of a more complete um, uh, unified land market. Um, uh, tied to that, you know, what happens with the property tax, right? That might put local governments on a more sound fiscal footing that might dampen, you know, excess demand in the, or, or, you know, overheated demand in the urban real estate market, right? What happens with these property tax experiments? Um, Can they move forward, you know, and um, begin to, without creating a crisis, address some of these um, um, underlying problems like incomplete land markets and um, distorted fiscal system uh, and, and things like that. So the optimistic scenario is that they, uh, the Chinese government can take these steps. Um, uh, the, uh, I think, pessimistic scenario is that um, they just put them off and put them off until, um, you know, then this, the system is so fragile that there can be a, uh, an, a grander crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, yeah, we see some 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 small signs that maybe they're beginning to take on the um, reforms that are are needed. Okay, interesting. Yeah, speaking of land law or uh, land law in China specifically, um, I know that you're working on a uh, new book. Is it forthcoming at this point? Uh, it's uh, uh, it's in process. So okay. so um, working its way out. Yes. Well, we'll definitely have to have you back on the podcast once it's out. But I'm I'm curious to get a little bit of a a preview because um yeah the the, the book title from what I understand is illiberal law and development property rights and conflict over land in China, and you know from from private conversation with you, I know that what, what you're trying to tackle here is really the question of well what can China really teach us about political economy given that it's such a a monumental case of of um, transformation politically and economically. Yeah, I, I think one of the there are a couple puzzles, right? One of the um, the the the, pu- the biggest puzzle for me is um, really that the one of the dominant theories in political economy is that you need secure private property rights underpinned mm-hmm. by a well functioning legal system mm-hmm. to um, as a pre as prerequisites for economic growth. Right. Um, and that makes China into a big puzzle. Um, exactly. It doesn't have secure property rights, and it it doesn't have uh, um, you know a, a super well functioning legal system 
um, underpinning private property rights. Mm -hmm. So um, that's a puzzle to me. And um, the way I think about it is that um, when does this theory hold? Under what conditions mm. does this dominant theory in, in political economy hold? And I think it doesn't necessarily hold at points of, of technological transition. And mm. we've just seen one in China, the transition from an overwhelmingly agricultural economy in which 800 million people were in the agricultural sector mm. um, to a more urban industrial economy where you know more than half of the population is now in urban non-agricultural pursuits. Um, at that point of technological transition, it might be that the state intervenes in um, the assignment of property rights to help um, reduce transaction costs in moving from lower value uses in mm -hmm. old technology into higher value uses in new technology. Um, and so we can see that, like having seen China just make this transition from agriculture to industry, and the state was, was sticking its hand in reassigning land rights from agriculture into industry and real estate. Um, uh, and, uh, and I think we can also then step back and say, well, are there other cases where this has happened? Uh, mm. And there's really interesting new research on um, the, the case of England or Britain post-glorious revolution, right? In which, in fact, parliament uh, used um, uh, you know, estate acts to actually re allow um, lords to reassign property rights that the old system did not allow mm. for new uses, um, to cut timber that it was never allowed to cut, right? To build roads that that old property rights forms did not allow um, uh, senior landholders to do. Um, uh, parliamentary acts to put in turnpikes, to put in new infrastructure, right? Mm. The state intervened. Um, and um, other like so there are a whole there's a whole body of research on looking at the role of the parliament after the glorious revolution um, that put in place like more urban industrial interests and said, you know, we got to reassign land rights, not these old tied down estates. We've got to allow um, uh, senior managers of estates, owners of estates to break old property rights and create new ones uh, for higher value uses. And um, so I think like this, in like the Chinese, the bold Chinese experience that has happened in less than half a century invites mm. us to revisit the um, 18th and 19th century in like the paradigmatic case of um, Britain and say, yeah. all right, in fact, we can see a parliament intervening to reassign property rights, to break old ones and create new ones that are more productive, that are in higher value uses. Uh, and And I think like, uh, most boldly, you could say, um, in the digital revolution, we see now before us a new technological revolution right. um, uh, about um, uh, per, you know the digital economy and the fight over property rights over personal data right? mm -hmm. and what what kind of property rights really drive growth and are you know who's going to claim that? So so this is this is my question. Um, under what conditions are you know, do you really need secure property rights? I think at points of transition, mm. we can see historically the state reassigning. Mm. Um, but then in establishing that new mode um, of, of uh, economic activity with the new technology, um, uh, then securing property rights. 
Okay. Right? So, so like if we look at the urban sector in China, property rights are more secure, I would argue, in the urban sector. Urban households have more secure property rights. Urban firms have more secure property rights than, let's say, um, rural uh, households in, in agriculture. Um, and so in the, the new um, technologically advanced sector, in this case, I'm just looking at industry, right? Yeah. And um, property rights are more secure. Uh, so that's really important. That's where the theory holds, that you need to have um, incentives to invest in the new technology, right? And to the extent that those are weak, um, actors will not have that incentive to invest. But there are lots of transaction costs to, to breaking those old property rights that are really kind of unproductive. Um, and right. I think we can see in historical cases, the state reaching in to um, uh, kind of uh, break those old property rights and help re reassign and create new ones. Um, that are then secure for the period of that that kind of mode of technological production, if that makes sense. That's very abstract. Yeah, I mean, no, I think that that makes a lot of sense. I, but um, uh, maybe slightly uh, concerningly, that seems even more complicated than just having secure property rights. Um, uh, end of story, right? If you say that, you know, at, at certain critical junctures, you actually need a state that is willing to break property rights of the wrong people right? or well, whatever that, that means, that's right? a little loaded right because <laughs> like, um, it's yeah. not the wrong people right it's it's people who are engaged in old technology right and they're exactly they're very very important people right <laughs> yeah sure but i mean uh the the importance of technology is also to some extent uh politically determined right um i, I would argue right like the, the, at certain different points in time you know uh different technologies could become, you know, the, the avenue, maybe. Or maybe that's too, too abstract a point right now. Um, no, let, no, let I me... mean, I would just go to Gershenkron for that, right? So, so yeah. like, like you want, states have an interest in, in reaching the, te the global technological frontier because right. that's where military competition and, and the first function of the state national defense takes place, right? So, so yeah. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, that, that, I, so, I think... so that's an interesting point though, right? So, so does that mean then, um, and maybe this is opening a whole nother can of worms that we're not going to be able to close right now, but uh, is it is this possibly only really a model for um, countries that are not on the technological frontier, right? So the, the frontier is somewhere else and you see, okay, well, those are technologies that we want to import and how are we going to do this? Um, and in that situation, you know, you might need, um, the state to break certain property rights that would not fit uh, the transfer of the technology uh, in question. Uh, well, I would I hesitate to use the word need, right? Um, okay. Uh, because that doesn't make it happen, right? These are political choices, right? And um, and so uh, I think you're taking this to another level and thinking about, let's say, um, uh, intellectual property, mm -hmm. for example. I think that's um, there, I, I think we see that once states are able to produce intellectual property of value, um, they have an incentive to defend it. Up until that mm -hmm. point, um, they probably have an incentive to um, uh, not respect it as strongly through their domestic laws, right? Um, so there's an incentive for the state there too. And, um, and, but no state is guaranteed to get to the point where, where um, they can produce intellectual property that they wanna defend. Um, uh, but that's, you know, uh, and so then we could think about like debates about industrial policy, for example, that are um, big in, in policy communities these days. Uh, right. That's a whole nother topic. <laughs> exactly. 
Well, I mean, uh, I think we can all agree that you definitely need to come back on the podcast at some point once your book is out, at the very least. We'd yeah, love to. Professor Susan Whiting, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, thank you, Nicholas. It's, it's really great fun to talk to you. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, we'll definitely uh, have you back soon. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Wittstock. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.